Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will begin a discussion on 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. As we get into this discussion on these verses here, my mind goes back to the Reformation. A lot of churches are associated with that in some way, shape, or form. And those churches are reformed churches. Well, what makes a a church reformed? Well, there's a whole bunch of things, but one of the bare minimum things that would make them reformed is whether or not they adhere to, let's call them the five solas of the Reformation, the onlys, right? You have sola gratia, gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola scriptura, sola deo gloria. It's to by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, by Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. Each one of those is important, and yea, it is even vital to our understanding of the true gospel. But I would actually argue today that without this fourth sola, which is sola scriptura, by scripture alone, we would have no knowledge that there should even be any solas, Right. How do we know that f- what faith is and its role in salvation? Same question about grace. And even the question of the person of our salvation, Jesus Christ. We would know very little of Christ apart from the scriptures, not to mention the exclusivity that he lays claim to in our salvation. So in a very real sense, when we say by the scripture alone, which is to say we don't include tradition and papal pronunciations ex cathedra, along with that, we are saying that all we need to know about God, mankind, sin, the solution for sin, the provision of forgiveness in Christ, and even the person of Christ can all be found in the scriptures. That sola of the Reformation means that we find the sufficiency of everything that we need for faith in the Scriptures. One commentator said this, The Bible claims ultimate spiritual authority in doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness because it represents the inspired word of Almighty God. Of course, he's referencing 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Scripture asserts its spiritual sufficiency so much that it claims exclusivity for its teaching. And again, you could look to Isaiah 55, verse 11, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, right here in our passage. This is known as the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, and our passage today spells it out perfectly. So as we move into discussing these verses— I would say this, that we must affirm the sufficiency of Scripture in addressing our entire life on earth. Do you believe that the Scriptures are sufficient to address every aspect of your life on earth? I hope that you do. Doesn't mean that it addresses them exhaustively, 
Uh, but what it does speak about, it speaks about accurately. And God has given us enough to know what we need to know about origins, uh, how we got here, why there's sin in the world, why there's death in the world, and even what comes later. It's all there in the scripture, and it is sufficient. So if we affirm the sufficiency of scripture, and we say that it addresses everything for our life on earth, the first thing that we notice then in verse three is that the sufficiency of scripture is a powerful doctrine. There is power behind the gift of scripture. And here we read this, his divine power. Okay. God is powerful. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 Jesus says that we don't have any cause to fear him who has the power to kill the body only, but rather we should fear him who has the power to cast both the body and the soul into hell. That is power. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, Jesus says. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul said, as he is declaring the opening verses of the, the scripture there as of his epistle, he said, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. A few verses later, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, in Romans 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And in Matthew 26, verse 64, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. When we speak of God's power, we are speaking of something that is really incredible, right? It's not just power in the sense of, you know, something limited or something that we can really wrap our minds around. He is all powerful. It's one of these attributes of God that is incommunicable, right? Uh, his omnipotence is not something that is communicated to us. We have some power, but we don't have all power. He has everything. And interestingly enough, for what it's worth, the word for power here is the same word at its root that we get our English word dynamite from. It's the, the in Greek, it's dunamis, his divine power, incredible power. It's the same power that we see in all the verses that we just referenced, that same power that has the ability to cast both the soul and the body into hell, the, the same power that brought the world into being. Uh, by the power of his word. It's the same power uh, that that Jesus operated in on this earth. And even in that verse, Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. We notice the power of God all around us, whether or not we acknowledge it and whether or not we rightly perceive it, it is everywhere. We know that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. That's Psalm, verse nine, or Psalm 19, right? The opening verses of that. That's general revelation. But in that, when we stop and think about everything, it had to have a creator. And since he made it from nothing, everything that we need, including the air we breathe and gravity on this earth, I mean, every little aspect of life that we probably rarely even think about, all of those things are his active power holding everything together. We're even told that. 
he holds the universe together in Hebrews chapter one. And if he weren't actively doing that by his incredible power, his divine power, then we, we could not be alive. It, and it's just incredible. That same power has given us the sufficiency of scripture. So when we stop and think about it, it's really incredible. The same one who holds the universe together, the same one who has all this incredible power has used that power to give us something that is for our benefit and for eternal profit. And that power has granted to us scripture. That's incredible. It, it really is. So when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we have to note, first of all, that it is a powerful doctrine. This comes out of God's endless sources of power, right? Because he doesn't have, you can't diminish his power. You can't deplete the power source. He is all powerful. But from that power, he has given to us the sufficiency of Scripture. So not only is it a powerful doctrine, but then we see that the sufficiency of Scripture is a gift. His divine power has what? Granted to us. It's a gift. So this sufficiency of scripture is quite incredible. First, we would note under this, the recipients of the gift, us, has granted to us, all of us. Uh, it's That's exactly who it's, it seems to be, right? Has granted to all of us. This is plural, first person plural. It is granted to all of us. We are the recipients. And of course, this us here is the people who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's verse one. And if you go back to his previous epistle, this is all the believers in the diaspora from not only Pentecost, but in the ensuing persecution as the new Christians spread throughout the world but it is to all Christians. So we are the recipients of this incredible gift, the sufficiency of scripture. What's the gift itself? Well, here he gets into, he gets into this. The gift itself is all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that's the gift itself, all things. And it literally means all things. We touched on this just a moment ago, but like we said, it's not, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't mean that the Bible addresses every single scientific, mathematical, artistic discipline that you could possibly think of, philosophical uh, discipline. It's not that. But what it means when we talk about the Scripture, and especially its sufficiency, is that when the Scripture addresses something, A, it's accurate. And when we say all things that pertain to life and godliness, now we're actually narrowing the field. What we are saying in that statement isn't that the scripture gives us all things that pertain to everything, but when it comes to life and when it comes to godliness, everything that we need to know about those two areas, life and godliness, are contained in the scripture. Life can include our life here on this earth, which is temporary, but it's the only life that you and I know this side of heaven, so we have to take the rest by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We live by faith. We are, uh, right? We, that's how we are called to live. And the point is, is that's very important, but we know from the scriptures that this life is a mere, if I could say it, a microcosm of what's coming later. And so we have to take all of that on faith. So there is this life, yes, 
But the scriptures also speak to life after this life. It's appointed unto man once to die after this, the judgment. Well, how can you be judged if you're dead? Well, that's the point. Death isn't the cessation of being. Death uh, merely is a transition and death is separation from the body of this world and a separation from the people who are in this world. And now it's a promotion or a graduation or a transition, whatever word you want to use there into the next. And we will receive a body that cannot die again. Even those who are condemned to eternal death in the lake of fire, that body will never cease. And so they will be eternally tormented. So that's what it talks about when it's saying everything that pertains to life. The scripture has given us enough of that information, but not only life, godliness. What is godliness? Well, godliness obviously has something to do with who God himself is and acting in accordance with him. The word could be translated piety and piety has to do with our relationship with God. And then again, how can we have a right relationship with God? It's not how others perceive our relationship with God. It's how God himself would characterize our relationship with him. And so if we want to have a life of godliness, which means that we're in a right standing with God, which means we're living upright before him, which means that we're living in a pious way, not in some legalistic Pharisaic sense, then we have to look to the scriptures to understand what that entails. And we don't look outside of them because, again, the sufficiency of scripture in these two areas is exactly that. It's sufficient. We're called to live godly lives. We're not simply saved just so we can go to heaven. We are left here on earth for a time, and this passage says that the word supplies everything we need for the rest of our life in Christ on this earth and godliness. Godliness is our aim. It is a virtue. It is something to which we aspire. In other words, there's no excuse for not living a godly life for believers have already received everything that is necessary to do so. Once you are saved, you now are in possession of everything that you need to begin to live for the Lord. One commentator said this, the Bible also attests to its own sufficiency. Psalm 19 verses 7 to 11. It is a light to one's path. Uh, Psalm 119.105. It is more reliable than even the most amazing spiritual experiences. 2 Peter 1.19 and 20. We'll get to that one in a few episodes. It's able to leave a person to saving faith. 2 Timothy 3.15. It instructs the religious elite as well as the common believer. Deuteronomy 6.4. Mark 12.37. Philippians 1.1. It was given by God to parents to instruct their children, Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, and is able to bring even a child to saving faith, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul wrote that all scripture is given by inspiration that's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That's a pretty impressive list as to what the scriptures are capable of doing. And one of the practical ways that we see this fleshing out when we're considering a passage like 2 Timothy 3.16 that is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness is in the training of righteousness. One of the passages that we could look to where we see the scriptures at work in this area is the end of Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, 
Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil or to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander uh, be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. That is practical training in righteousness that we've even looked at in a previous podcast series on the book of Ephesians. And so we see there that when the scripture says that all things pertaining to life and godliness, if that has to include training and righteousness, well, we just looked at one small section that includes how to live in a righteous and upright way before God. John MacArthur had a very applicable observation on this passage here. He said, between the scriptures and the indwelling Holy Spirit, the believer needs no additional revelation to be informed on how to live the Christian life. We don't need anything outside of the Bible to tell us how to live the Christian life. So we've seen the recipients of the gift. We've seen the gift itself, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And when we come back on our next episode, we'll look at the last aspect, which is the means of obtaining the gift. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.